Welcome to Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise. I'm releasing this book in podcast form where every episode is a chapter. So if you're new to this party, please start at the beginning and listen through chronologically. Everything will make much more sense if you do. Thank you, truly, for being here. Now let's get this show on the road. Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise. Chapter Two To All Things a Season. Trust yourself. At the root, at the core, there is pure sanity, pure openness. Don't trust what you've been taught, what you think, what you believe, what you hope. Deeper than that, trust the silence of your being. Gangaji. The months directly after Marshall's death became something of an incubation period where I honed a skill I had never really thought to practice, the skill of listening. Externally, I began to notice the ways in which the world as we've built it finds ways to perpetuate itself. I hadn't previously noticed the frequency with which we as humans choose to simply agree with truth as others tell it. Usually, it seemed to me without even giving the matter much thought. For my part, I stopped agreeing out loud with statements I considered to be untrue, but I didn't necessarily speak up against them. In regards to listening internally, I began to take more conscious control of which thoughts I allowed to stay and which I dismissed. I was coming to recognize that all our inner voices, thoughts, if you will, were like ships coming in from sea requesting permission to dock. When we hand a particular voice the inner microphone, which is to say when we let it guide our words and actions, we are granting it the permission it seeks. Does this make sense, my friends? Because every time we choose to speak, our words have been guided by some thought, some voice within us. And if we aren't in charge of our own thoughts, I mean, who is? (laughs) I spent January, February, March, and April in Merida, Mexico with my kids, which was a plan many years in the making. It had always been one of my primary homeschooling goals to teach my boys that not everyone in the world looked like us, spoke like us, ate like us, or lived like us, and that no one cultural disposition was inherently superior to another. I wanted to teach them that human equals human, and that any division between us and them is a false division. I was proud of myself for traipsing down to a foreign country in the name of broadening my children's social and cultural horizons. And you know what? I still am. For a week in March, my mom and Dave, my stepdad, came down for a visit, and I gleefully taught them everything I'd learned about the Yucatan— I even convinced them to look at some properties for sale and to consider cost-sharing a small house with William and me. They rolled their eyes at such classic Evie ridiculousness, but you'll soon see how that dice rolled. The spring passed uneventfully, and in July 2017, William and I started brainstorming ways to celebrate our upcoming 15th wedding anniversary. Little did I know my marital promises were about to duke it out with Marshall's promise, and I would have to decide if I meant it when I said that staying connected to my deepest heart really was the most important thing. Here's a brief contextual guide on my history with William and how we got to be where we were. If our relationship had been a song, I had always played the flamboyant melody while he held down the steady bass. 
in non-metaphorical life, he was a gifted drummer, a reliable employee, and an engaged father. I loved him, and he loved me, and we'd always found our way back to each other after moments of discord. In the early years of our marriage, I was hired privately by a family in India to work for nine months as a behavioral therapist with their five-year-old autistic son. The following year, I took a similar job in Japan. William accompanied me for a few weeks in each country, but ultimately returned to the States to pursue his own graduate degree and resource management career. By the time I reunited with him in Yosemite in 2007, we were both ready for the long-distance chapter of our union to come to an end. I didn't feel quite at home in the geographic isolation that his federal land management jobs took us, but I reminded myself that being married meant being part of a team. I had had my turn to follow my professional calling, not to mention a chance to appease my wanderlust. Now it was my turn to let William lead. In 2008, I was accepted to the University of the Pacific's graduate program for speech and language pathology, and their campus is nestled in the Central Valley of California, about a two-and-a-half-hour drive from Yosemite. William and I sat down to have the difficult conversation of what to do next. Should we leave the park, effectively abandoning his career so I could pursue mine? Should I go to school alone and live apart from my beloved again, even if I could maybe drive home on weekends? Should I defer enrollment until we could think on it some more? We agreed that the last option was best, and we kicked the can of my professional development down the road a bit. It was during that year of deferment when I called Madeline to ask her advice on graduate school versus pregnancy. Without hesitating, she told me to have the baby. You're how old now? She asked. 27? Well, your ovaries hit their peak performance around 23. I'm not saying it'll be difficult to conceive, but biologically speaking, the longer you wait, the higher the likelihood there will be complications. Graduate school will always be there, my dear. Hmm, this was not the advice I'd expected from my favorite hardworking overachiever. I suppose I had forgotten she was a biologist. So in July 2009, William and I welcomed our first son, I had been working at a child care center designed to support the Yosemite community, and on paper, it was ideal. I had a full-time job, and I could bring my baby to work. What more could a modern mother ask for? However, within a year of my son's birth, it was clear that the workplace was a toxic environment. The reasons I stayed were echoes of the reasons people stay in abusive relationships, which I never would have believed before I lived it. Before, I didn't understand how anyone could not recognize that they were in an abusive relationship, nor would I have believed that workplace trauma can be as, well, traumatic as home-based trauma. When I finally stumbled across my professional limit, my threshold, my breaking point, I did the thing I'd been conditioned to think of as failure, and I quit my job. Living in the middle of nowhere with no advanced degree left precious few opportunities for me to find employment, which is the long and the short of how I became a housewife with a Vassar degree, even if I peppered the following years with part-time jobs and, you know, creative gigs. In 2012, our second son was born, and in 2013, we moved to LaGrande. The little community in eastern Oregon checked all the boxes of what we were looking for in a hometown— a climate that wouldn't turn a redhead to ash, abundant nearby outdoor recreation, and a cost of living that allowed our family to survive on William's public servant salary. 
Legrand was, and is, an ideal home base from which to launch into the larger world. Oh, for those of you doing the chronological math, our first house in Legrand was not the Cobalt Craftsman. So, I jumped in with both feet to what I had been taught to believe was the privileged life of someone who didn't have to, quote, work full-time. I learned how to cook, tried my hand at homeschooling, and ran our household like it was my job. Because it was my job. And it was a privilege. I endeavored to remain optimistic about the way the cookie had crumbled and acknowledged that my life wasn't something that happened to me. I was an active participant in the choices William and I had made as a team. In hindsight, I see that my life as I'd built it was riddled with deficiencies and imbalances. I unconsciously believed that being a good mom meant never saying, I'm unavailable to do that for you because I'm committed to doing this for me. That is, unless doing this for me meant paid employment. Why didn't I send my kids to public school if I felt so overwhelmed, you may wonder? It's a reasonable question. I suppose I didn't want to admit defeat. I doubled down on the idea that success looks a certain way, and admitting I needed a break would somehow, in my mind, count as failure. I didn't know I was allowed to have a limit, a threshold, a breaking point as a mother. But for every day I failed to acknowledge the truth of my life's imbalance, it was like dropping an imaginary marble into an imaginary fishing boat. Such a boat may stay afloat for a good long while, but as long as the marbles kept coming, that fucker was bound to sink. Let's get back to July 2017 as I was starting to ask myself what it really meant to actualize Marshall's promise. It was one thing to have an epiphany while watching a friend die. It was another thing to embrace that epiphany in daily life. If I want to keep my promise, I thought, tautologically, I need to keep my promise. So one night after William had tucked the kids in bed and I had cleaned up the kitchen, I sat in the guest room with the door closed and meditated. I opened my eyes when the time felt right and stretched skyward. Knowing how to tap into this is great, I thought, but I don't want my whole spiritual journey to be just sitting in a room by myself. I think I'd like to have... I hesitated. Was I allowed to make requests? How can the universe know what to deliver if you don't place an order? Advised my deepest heart. This was all the permission I needed. All right, then, I continued. I'd like to have a spiritual guide or a spiritual community. I paused again, remembering where I was. Rural isolated eastern Oregon. Or maybe just a spiritual friend, I amended. At that moment, William walked in without knocking. Um, hi, I said. Oh, you are in here, he said. Yep. Oh, okay, I was just wondering. I didn't respond. I felt somewhat violated. Was there no space in my world other than the toilet that was safe from unannounced interruption? And even then, as you may know, with children, privacy in the bathroom is not a guarantee. How had this never been an issue before? I guess I'll leave you to it, William finally said before turning to leave. Thanks, I stammered. Could you close the door again on your way out, please? This spiritual friend arrived less than a week later, in the shape of a girlfriend's romantic partner— we were hosting my son's eighth birthday at the river, and Cora and her kids were on the guest list. 
An hour or so into the party, once the cake was cut, the kids were enthralled with river games, and the adults had scattered into small groups, Cora's partner approached me. I love that book, he said, pointing to the copy of Conversations with God tumbling out of my beach bag. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I said, mine too. I think it was optimistic of me to bring it today. But I'm trying to consciously invest in my spiritual life instead of giving all of my energy to being a mother, a full mother, and nothing but a mother. So help me, God. Good for you, he said. And I was somewhat taken aback. Whenever I made wisecracks about how overwhelming motherhood could feel, I was usually met with reminders of the invaluable contribution all moms were making. Spirituality is like any other muscle, he continued. You've got to work it out to keep it strong. We should talk more. It sounds like we have some things in common. Would you feel comfortable if I gave you my number? I loved that he asked permission. We exchanged digits enthusiastically. A little later, as the party was winding down and the kids scampered through the park, sun-kissed and sopping, William and I began packing up the car to head home. Hey, William, I started. I wasn't exactly sure what I was trying to say. Yeah, he said. I had never met Cora's partner before, had you? I think maybe once, at a gig I was playing at 10 Depot, maybe? He seems like good people to me, I ventured. We started talking about conversations with God. It feels like maybe he's the spiritual friend I've been looking for. I mean, I hope that doesn't hurt your feelings. I think it's no secret that you and I aren't usually on the same page spiritually. Maybe not, he concurred. Anyway, I think I'm going to schedule a time to hang out with him. It feels important to be around people who I can talk to about spiritual things. William nodded noncommittally as he loaded the ice chest into the trunk. I guess I just wanted to let you know. Okay, he said, scanning the park and beckoning the boys to come help load up. A few days later, when I was about to call my spiritual friend, I stopped myself short. Should I reach out to Cora to ask if she's comfortable with this, I wondered? Or is that a weird old narrative of ownership and permission? He was a grown-ass man, not a child under a chaperone's supervision. But she was a friend. Would she feel betrayed if she found out I was hanging out with her partner and hadn't told her first? This was the kind of internal debate that would cycle ceaselessly, hamster-style, in my mind, in the era before Marshall's death. But now I felt like I had a lifeline. Nobody owns anybody, my deepest heart advised. You may ruffle her feathers by not calling her, but you put yourself in a position to be denied access to your new spiritual friend if you do call her. It's up to you to decide which risk you'd rather take. I dialed his number. Hey, Evie, good to hear from you, he said. I was just about to head to the river. Do you want to come? Oh, I didn't know the kids were still with you guys, I said, assuming he was inviting me to a multi-generational playdate reminiscent of the birthday party. We don't have the kids. They're with their dad, he replied. I was momentarily stunned. It had never, not once, not ever occurred to me I could go to the river without my kids. Wow, that sounds amazing, actually, I said. It was a date. I threw on my swimsuit, packed my beach bag, and told William I'd be back in a few hours. Oh, where are you going? He asked, somewhat bewildered. It was wildly uncharacteristic of me to just leave the house, even if William was home and available to watch the boys. I explained to him the situation and assured him I'd be back soon. Okay, have a good time, he said in a good-faith effort to support me. The next time I met up with my spiritual friend, it was over coffee. After that, we met at an orchard to go cherry-picking. 
then we just started hanging out. But the more time I spent with my new spiritual friend, the more William and I disagreed about when and how I could appropriately tend the garden of my own spiritual growth. A healthy marriage is built on a foundation of trust, I argued, and if you don't trust me, that's a problem. It's not that I don't trust you, he replied. It's that this all feels very familiar and not in a good way. I knew exactly what William was talking about. I had come close to having an affair a few years back with a fully tattooed James Dean type who drove the sexiest cherry red vintage truck you've ever seen. Hot damn, that truck was sexy. But I had been snapped back into line by friends, family, therapists, and even by the heartthrob himself, bless his heart, who all reminded me that the sexual element of a relationship naturally fades over time, and that I should reconsider throwing away my marriage just so I could get laid by a handsome bad boy. I did reconsider, and I came back to William with appreciation for his patience and his, and I'm quoting myself, willingness to put up with me. I understood that my new spiritual friend was a trigger for William, but I wasn't willing to abandon this gift the universe had bestowed upon me just because it made William uncomfortable. What was I supposed to do? Limit my spiritual friendships to women only? William and I began working through the intricacies of the conflict. Our disagreement was dignified, and there was certainly no yelling involved— But at one point, William said something I found to be extremely troubling. This, my friends, is what he said. (laughs) Haha, okay, so I'm not actually going to tell you what he said. This is me making my own boundaries and asking you, dear reader, dear listener, to trust me. Uh, You should also know that the bleep isn't, you know, as long. It's not as many seconds as uh, the thing that William actually said. Okay, back to the story. My mind tried to brush it off, but I was finally learning that my mind didn't always know what was best. When I asked my divinity within about the nature of William's statement, the response was clear. Saying, was a big deal. Look, William, I said, I know. And it actually hurts my feelings that you would feel compelled to say it. I don't want to be married to a person who would ever say it, you know? So I guess what I'm saying is, if you feel compelled to say again, it's going to be a problem. I mean it. Sure, I get it, he said and left the room. I thought it was settled. About a week later, I received a birth announcement from an old college friend. She'd had her third child with her Vassar sweetheart, and I was genuinely elated and painfully jealous. I'd always longed for a third baby— Though my longing was in conflict with all things rational and with William's desire to stop it, too. Can you just give me some space to have some feelings? I told William as he hovered around me in my emotional rain cloud. He obliged and left the room, only to return five minutes later to say, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Had I not been crystal clear? I thought I had been maybe my perception and William's perception of my request differed. Maybe he didn't understand the weight of the matter. I decided to give him the benefit of the doubt because this was my marriage we were talking about here. Look, William, I stumbled. 
I don't know if I wasn't clear before or if you didn't believe me, but this shit will not stand. I mean, you do what you gotta do, but if you ever say that to me again, I'll have to leave. We slept side by side that night like we always did, and I hoped in my heart of hearts that my marriage wasn't on its last legs. The next day, my spiritual friend joined me and my kids for a sun-kissed morning in the huckleberried hills of rural Oregon. If you haven't experienced the wonder of wild huckleberry picking, you're forgiven. Please allow me to initiate you. The huckleberry is a tart, tiny fairy fruit that grows wild on thornless shrubs, so they already have blackberries beat by a mile. Huckleberry habitat is a mere 20 minutes out of town, but the sun-dappled, forested wonderland in which they grow pulses with its own prehistoric energy. It feels sacred. When my kids are lucky enough to be invited up the hill, we'll pause our picking every so often and do a six-shot, where we toast each other and gobble six tiny gems at once. Huckleberry-gasm! This particular picking session, as the boys scampered through the woods, jumping off logs and playing imagined survival games, I asked my spiritual friend for his opinion about the boundary I'd made with William. Am I being too severe here? I asked him. Am I, you know, wrong? I can't answer that question, he said, as he kneeled next to a bush positively brimming with berries. But I can ask you this— Are there any legitimate grounds, in your mind anyway, for ending a marriage? Or is, say, physical abuse the only one? I said nothing. I want to be clear, he continued, I am not encouraging you to end your marriage. I'm just encouraging you to ask yourself. I spent the whole morning thinking it over. It was beyond obvious that the right thing to do would be to leave my marriage if my partner ever hit me, though this is not to cast stones at those who don't or can't leave abusive relationships. But I had never consciously considered the existence of any equally weighted deal-breakers. I thought marriage was a promise to stay coupled through all challenges—poverty, sickness, doubt, infidelity, etc., It had never occurred to me that a promise to self was allowed to take priority over a promise to the partnership. But how silly a thing. One must maintain one's own health and well-being in order to serve as a healthy partner, or a healthy mother, or a healthy employee. And who among us would prefer the alternative? Would you rather have a sick partner, or a sick mother, or a sick employee? A few days later, on the universe's queue... William expressed a renewed concern about the amount of time I was spending with my new spiritual friend. I felt like I was being babysat. I rebutted with a reminder that I had promised to alert William every time my friend and I spent time together, and that I'd kept that promise. Do you know what William said next? He said, Oh, shit, I thought. This is it. I... I said to William, tears in my eyes, I told you I would leave if you ever said that again, and you chose to say it. So I guess I'm going to sleep somewhere else tonight. He didn't say anything. It's not that he was indifferent. I think he was dumbstruck. He somberly watched me pack. When I had a small overnight bag ready, he looked me straight in the eye, teared up, and said, Well, if this is it, 
I've had a really good 15 years with you. I'm not saying this is it forever, I replied, but this is definitely it for right now. The separation started that night. Then it carried over to the next and the next. I stayed in the house during the daytime to watch the boys while William was at work, but each night I pleaded with a rotating group of my closest friends to let me stay with them. When I couldn't find a friend's couch to crash on, I slept in the guest room of the craftsman. This was the era when the runaway bag was born. The runaway bag, which had heretofore been known as simply a bag, was a rainbow-striped denim hybrid between a purse and a backpack, and I'd bought it secondhand in Japan. The main strap came diagonally over the shoulder like a seatbelt, making it ergonomic as well as adorable. There were separate pockets for my phone, keys, passport. Its triangular shape allowed it to fit an impossible number of items, like something out of Mary Poppins. It may not have carried everything I needed to survive forever, but it could carry everything I needed to survive for a day or two. Water bottle, notebook, toothbrush, emergency mascara, etc. A credit card could always buy the rest. In a pinch, that is. The runaway bag was like my blankie. It made me feel safe. It made me feel free. William and I agreed to give it a little more time to see if it felt right or wrong to be apart, but the more time that passed, the more correct it felt to be uncoupled. It was looking like Marshall's death had ignited the spark that lit the fire that was burning my life to the ground. It was looking like phoenixes were real. So how should we do this? William asked one morning when I'd come down from the guest room as he readied himself for work. One of us should probably move out at some point. Agreed, I said quietly, trying to let the boys sleep. I guess we need to figure out how we're going to manage parenting time, and we can go from there. See, I had been raised by divorced parents, splitting my time evenly between two households. And while I congratulate my folks for doing the best they knew how, the 50-50 arrangement was problematic for too many reasons to list here. In my eyes, children needed a solid home base so they weren't living in a perpetual state of culture shock. William had always known my feelings on the matter. Would you rather be the primary parent or the visiting parent, I asked him. Primary, he said, and I was glad of it. He wanted the job and I wanted a break from the job, so everyone was happy. I predicted that at some point in the future I would miss my boys terribly, but that's where the emotional burden should fall, I reasoned on the parent, not on the child. If that's the case, I should probably move out, I said. You have the job and you can pay all the bills. Does that sound fair? I'd like to continue to watch the boys during the day while you're at work, if I can manage it, financially. I think that arrangement would be good for all of us. That sounds perfect, he said. It'll be nice to not have to scramble for childcare or, you know, pay for childcare. Should we do that standard every other weekend thing, I suggested? Yes, let's, he agreed. But are you sure you'll have a place to watch them on your weekends? I'm not sure of anything, William. So maybe until I have a reliable roof over my head, we can use this house as the kid house. I can come here and stay in the guest room on my weekends and you can sleep somewhere else. What do you mean? Like where? He said. I don't know, I responded, trying not to be peeved and trying to keep my voice down. There are a lot of things about all of this that I don't know. None of these have to be permanent solutions, okay? Can we just do what works for now and fix what doesn't work as we figure it out? Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, he admitted. So, that's how we did it. 
We solved problems as they became problems, but not sooner. The question of where I would live, at least in the short term, was answered with something of a miracle. I would live rent-free at the bungalow on Oak Street that William's Pennsylvania-based parents had bought a few years prior. Before the purchase, they would come to visit for a week or so at a time, and after every visit, we would lament the short duration of their stay. To address the problem, they eventually invested in a darling two-bedroom place on Oak Street. When they signed the papers and got the deed, we envisioned Nanny and Granddad, both retired, coming out for a few months at a time, helping with the kids, weekend adventures and music lessons, summer camps and lazy Sunday mornings. It hadn't exactly panned out that way, and the house was both vacant and partially furnished that fateful July. It just made sense for me to stay there, at least for a little while in the very beginning. William's parents seemed to think so too and offered it to me as soon as we told them about the split. Maybe this was the real reason we bought it, his mom said with melancholy but without spite. They told me I could stay as long as I needed to and I gratefully accepted. I started a pile for you, William said early on as I began moving out. You can take anything else you want. I just know there are things that are definitely yours. The energy of this gathering was charitable, and I was honored to see that one of the first items he'd collected was the giant calavera I'd brought home from Mexico earlier that year. Nobody, myself included, understood why I loved that thing so much, but I was touched that William recognized its sentimental value. Either that, or he couldn't wait to get it out of his house. (laughs) Thanks, William, I said. I looked around the house I had so carefully appointed, and I sighed deeply. You can have any of the furniture, more or less, I should think, he said, sensing my longing. Well, okay, maybe. Thanks. I like the way this house is assembled, though. I don't want to tear it apart. I mean, I may grab a few things here and there, but I'll always check with you first. Sounds good, he said. Honestly, I feel sometimes like I just want to give everything away. (laughs) Why do you think I moved out so fast? I joked. Now all this junk is yours, sucker! (laughs) Goodbye, cobalt craftsman, I thought somberly as I brought the last of the boxes to the Prius. I leaned against the car and looked back at the house that was the epitome of everything I'd previously longed for. I got to live in my dream home once in my life, I reflected before driving away. Lucky me. William and I started putting the pieces in motion to make our legal divorce as cordial and as equitable as possible. We acknowledged that we'd loved each other for a long time, and that splitting up didn't make us enemies. I had been repeatedly advised to legally protect myself during my divorce process, but that didn't sit right with my deepest heart. Was I worried that William would freeze my accounts or spend my assets or sabotage me in any other way? Not at all. My truest self said that William and I had never treated each other in such ways, so why would we start now? Our word was our promise, and we didn't need a third party to act like the grown-up between two fighting children. Publicly, we initiated a grateful, respectful, and sorrowful dissolution. We each wrote a few paragraphs about the other in deliberately affectionate terms— We wrote how appreciative we were of our time together and how we were now releasing the other into the big, beautiful world of happier, healthier possibilities. Then we posted the bios alongside a tender photo from our wedding day on my blog, 
marshallspromise.com, and titled the essay, A Joyful Goodbye. This joint public announcement, like an inverse wedding invitation, set the tone for our divorce. It showed the world that we chose to build each other up even as we let each other go. It helped us tell our story only once and in unison. I was determined to redirect every inquisitive, but what happened, with, here's the link. Because the people who I wanted to talk to didn't have to ask what happened. Every telling would have cost a little energy, and I was saving my energy up like the valuable resource it was for the real work I knew lay ahead. It had been less than a month, but the boys, William and I, were a three-part harmony of such a euphonious new song that I found myself wanting to look over my shoulder, afraid of some legendary dropping shoe. Strange how we're conditioned to think that life wasn't allowed to be this good. Pish posh, said my deepest heart. Life's goodness has no ceiling. The new family routine began to feel balanced and effortless. I showed up at the quaint cobalt craftsman every morning, Monday through Friday, at a quarter to eight. I watched the boys while William was at work, spending the days with my kids as we'd spent them before I moved out. I always respected William's privacy. That is, I never went into his bedroom, even though it used to be our bedroom. And I did what I could to help with the household chores. One day, I dumped out all the old, moldy leftovers and scrubbed down the fridge. Another time, I cleaned the boys' room top to bottom, including washing, folding, and putting away the backlog of stinky laundry. When William got home, I would catch him up on the day's goings-on, hug the kids goodbye, then lift off into the vast freedom of the evening hours. The passengers I'd previously taken full responsibility for were safe and sound in another's care. Hallelujah! And oh, that glorious free time! I started running again in this era of my life, which I'd previously done with something of a grumble. Running and exercise had always been a means to an end. Go for a run, lose weight. Now, I embraced the sensations of getting strong and lean in the moment they were experienced. Besides, I never really thought about my jaunts as jogs. It was more like dancing with forward movement. I would jump, two-legged, from white line to white line of the zebra-striped crosswalks. I would swing from the construction scaffolding, trying to land like a gymnast. I would slow down and limbo backward under a low-hanging branch. My mastery over not caring whether people thought I was crazy was already coming in handy. Some nights, I would walk for hours around town, skipping dinner entirely and befriending a sharp satisfaction I'd always repelled. Hunger. I had overeaten nearly every day of the last two decades, and it was wildly empowering to learn that cakes and cookies were not the boss of me. As soon as I was no longer imprisoned by my own beliefs about my eating habits, I could say yes or no to food with full authority. And there was no better place to say yes to food than at Harriet Jean's. Good lord, that woman could cook. Harriet Jean was one of the most inspiring weirdos in the whole wide world. She knew a lot about crystals, jewelry, sewing, vodka, metaphysical realms, house music, the value of experience over the value of money, and divine timing. The bead shop that she co-owned with her mom opened at 11-ish. Harriet was never worried about cash, even though her bank account rarely boasted surplus funds. She had enough, plenty even, 
and she knew it. After any particularly fruitful grocery expedition, she'd invite me to her exceptionally small but not officially tiny house, lead me to her kitchen, open her fridge door, and gesture to her bounty. I'm rich, she'd say, and she was right. You couldn't show up at Harriet's house without being offered food, and she was adamant in assuring us that it brought her pleasure to feed her people. In turn, it brought us pleasure to eat and then to clean up the kitchen. Happiness, you see, is not a zero-sum proposition. Giving really is getting, really is giving, really is getting. One night at Harriet Jean's, in the company of my fellow neighborhood goddesses Chloe and Rosa, the four of us installed a stripper pole. Before moving to Legrand, Chloe had been a professional hula hooper, and she would always be a performer at heart. Oh my god, I am so excited about this, she said as we secured the pole to the ceiling and floor. My husband didn't want me to have one in our house because he said it was trashy. She made a stink face. Trashy? I asked. Why? Oh, Evie, for real? She questioned. I mean, it's your house, I argued. It's not like having a stripper pole in the privacy of your space makes you a stripper. And... Even if you were, it's not like being a stripper makes you trashy. Well, my husband sees it differently, she said, rolling her eyes. That's why I'm here, Harriet Jean interjected. Hand me that drill, would you, Rosa? The four of us danced that night until we were dripping with sweat. My body felt strong and capable and, blush, sexy. Sexuality, you see, was a force I had never consciously tamped down, but now that my soul was free and my body was free, I was beginning to hear the steady call of my goddess chakra. After 15 years of attempted monogamy, I was free to act on my sexual desires without breaking my word. I could fuck anyone I wanted, and who wanted me, and I wasn't going to get in trouble for it. What a rush! Because here's the truth. William and I had never made a dynamite sexual team. We pleased each other, to be sure, and our sex life was never abusive or unpleasant. But having never experienced another, I simply had no idea that we were not the most compatible of lovers. I should note that my sexual incompatibility with William is not a referendum on either of our ability to make love. Good and bad are relative terms, and what turns me on in the bedroom may be entirely different than what turns you on. My preferences are right for me, and your preferences are right for you, and even if we disagree, that doesn't make either one of us incorrect. After the night of the stripper pole, I walked back to the Oak Street bungalow and took off all my clothes. Up until this point, the only time I'd been naked was during showers or lovemaking, and even then, I'd often been partially clothed while getting it on. I looked down at my skin, my body parts, my miraculous movement machine— and I recognized that the details of its composition were of negligible import. No thigh gap? Who gives a shit? There would come a day when my body would no longer house the life force of its own animation. The fact that I could, at this very moment, command every part of myself was a precious gift that I would no longer forget to be thankful for. Sorry I was so mean to you for so long, I told my body. I'm going to take better care of you from here on out. It didn't take long before I was spending as much time naked, or as close to naked, as possible. It helped me hear my body even when it was clothed. My posture changed. 
my presence changed. One day when I was out for a walk, a friend pulled up at a stop sign where I was about to cross the road. Hey, Evie, how are you doing? He asked with genuine concern in his voice. I'm doing great, actually, I said, and I meant it. You don't have to put on a happy face for me, he said suspiciously. Take care of yourself. Hmm. Interesting that he assumed my joy was disingenuous. If I had been sobbing while telling him I felt fine, I might understand his compulsion to trust my actions over my words, but that's not how it had happened. Personally, I choose to trust people when they tell me how they feel. If my friend and his truck had been a one-off, I wouldn't be including it here. But this cultural mistrust of my happiness was strangely pervasive. One woman who had been something of a mother figure to me throughout my childhood sent me an inspirational meme that said, You need not wrap your grief in a quaint story of inspiration. (laughs) Another woman, a biological cousin, reprimanded me for handing William primary custody and moving out of the house, claiming that she would always be a mother first. They aren't trying to tear me down. I reflected with my deepest heart, but stones are stones, even if thrown unconsciously. It strikes me as wise to find a way to protect myself against such threats, intended or otherwise. Spiritual shield, came the answer. So, without thinking much about it, I expanded my inner palace of peace into a life-size bubble that wrapped all the way around me. Wowzers, I'd created a force field. This felt remarkably powerful, but even then I knew I could level up. Slings and arrows, bah, I declared internally. My force field won't merely repel you. It will transform you. Once you break through this barrier, you will turn into soft, sweet rose petals. Abracadabra. If I'd had a magic wand, I would have waved it right then and there. If this whole anecdote seems preposterously corny, I apologize. It is also preposterously true. I know the truth of who I really am, I thought. My palace of peace is impenetrable. And if they knew who they really were, they wouldn't be throwing stones. I wish peace in their hearts, that they may know the truth of themselves. Now we're cooking with gas, said my deepest heart. On one quiet evening, after I'd clocked off from my daily parenting duties, I sat alone on the rug of the Oak Street bungalow and meditated on my future. Is money the thing I need most? I asked inwardly. Everyone is telling me I need to worry about money. Do you think money is the thing you need most? asked my deepest heart, reflecting me back to me as most good teachers do. Hmm, I think money is a placeholder for value. And I think the things I usually trade for money can be acquired without it, more or less. I contemplated this for a moment. That is, even if I do need a little money, I don't think I need as much as I'm used to thinking I do. I have a little pile of savings, and I'm still working part-time for that land trust, so I think I have enough. Plenty, even. Righto, said my deepest heart. Don't spend your savings! warned an old voice, born of an inherited fear of scarcity. Absolutely spend your savings, said the deeper, calmer me. If savings weren't meant for a time like this, what sort of time were they for? Plus, my deepest heart continued, 
don't forget about human kindness. You can be grateful for your small stash of money and for whatever generosity flows your way. Done and done, I thought. The most fundamental question I was now asking myself, incredulous as I was to have never thought to ask it before, was this. What does a body really and truly need? What must we have and will die without? Or, if not die, suffer unnecessarily? Here's what I came up with. If I wanted to survive, I needed food and shelter. If I wanted to thrive, I needed food, shelter, transportation, communication, and a sense of safety. Hmm, I thought, that is a remarkably short list. In the matter of food, yes, my body required sustenance, but I'd already been experimenting with how much food I could live without. In the matter of shelter, I had a rent-free roof over my head, thanks to Nanny and Grandad, and I hadn't forgotten to count that blessing. In the matters of transportation and communication— What privilege I already lived in. I had a car and a phone. I'll confess, I was still on my mom's family plan. Did this feel puerile? Maybe, but I wasn't going to say anything about it if she wasn't. And it wasn't like my mom was unaware she was paying my phone bill. I decided to accept with gratitude all forms of generosity, even the type that's given without announcement. Furthermore, William and I agreed that I would keep the Prius, which I had been the primary driver of during our marriage, and which, except for the insurance, had no associated monthly payments. When William told me he'd cover the cost of auto insurance for the upcoming year while I found my financial footing, I told him he was the most awesome ex-husband I'd ever had. Somewhere deep within, I also knew that the equity of the quaint cobalt craftsman would be due to me at some point and in some shape, even if it broke my heart but not my deepest heart, to sell my dream home. I wasn't going to demand that William put the place on the market right away, because what would that accomplish? Plus, shouldn't William and I split the retirement fund? Ah, but I was getting ahead of myself. That would all sort itself out. For now, I was still, really, in the just-broken-up phase. And the more I thought and prayed about it, the more I trusted I wouldn't need very much money at all to do what I needed to do. What exactly did I need to do? Well, I needed to figure that out, too. It had something to do with staying connected to my deepest heart, singing from the rooftops, speaking truth, sharing joy, and helping people wake up the way Marshall had helped me. I just didn't know yet what packaging the work would be wrapped in. In the next breath, I had an electrifying vision. I saw myself speaking to an enormous crowd of people. I was a glow, and the crowd was a glow— And in this vision, I knew that I had somehow tapped into doing whatever work I was supposed to be doing on Earth. When I looked closer, I saw everyone in the crowd was offering me something in their cupped hands. I couldn't decipher what they were holding exactly, but the energy of the exchange was clear. I brought what I had to bring and shared it freely. They brought what they had to bring and shared it freely. The system was balanced. All parties were beaming. Let me be clear. I was not pretending there wasn't a loss to be mourned. Transformations come with growing pains. My 15-year marriage was ending. This ending was correct and necessary, and it was extremely uncomfortable for what felt like unbearably long moments. And yet, just as my heart kept beating after the excruciating discomfort of Marshall's death— 
I knew my heart would keep beating after the turmoil of divorce. Just be careful of living in the future, reminded my deepest heart. You won't need to grieve forever, but you do need to grieve some now. And so, when the beast of morning came knocking, whatever the hour or context, I always gave it audience. I told my other emotional guests, if I had any, to please give us the room, and I invited that painful creature inside. It stunk up the place, but I trusted it would leave when it was ready. There was a lot of full-body sobbing. There was a lot of full-lunged screaming. Once I screamed so loud and for so long that the noise of the thing seemed to be the least important component. It became more a sensation in my throat and a feeling behind my eyes. It felt marvelous to let that shit out. Screamgasm! I mourned hard and hot and fast. I didn't want this to last any longer than absolutely necessary. One off-duty weekend, when the morning monster woke me up so early it felt more like the middle of the night, I decided to make the 250-mile drive to Portland and spend the whole day at a meditation center I'd found online. I had never been there before, but I felt called to meditation centers the way I imagine others might feel called to church. I needed a spiritual safe space, and I knew I could process some high-density grief within their perimeters. Once I arrived, I spent the first hours in quiet, private meditation, where I softly wept as I tapped into the electric core of my sorrow. There were a few other meditators in the room, but none of them seemed bothered by my muffled tears. Afterward, the formal programming was scheduled, and the room began filling up. The leader was a fellow who I'd never met, but who, for the next hour and a half, spoke words that felt like they'd been written specifically for me. Shifting from solo sitting to group listening felt natural. It felt like winter moving into spring. When the sermon of sorts ended, some folks left and new arrivals came. The same guide led us through a walking meditation, which is exactly what it sounds like. As I moved slowly through the room, swimming through space, avoiding collisions, making heartfelt, fleeting eye contact with others— it was hard not to interpret the exercise as a message. One step at a time, baby girl, you got this. Spring had blossomed into summer, and it wasn't even noon. Later, the meditation guide mentioned that there were free spiritual consultations available after the scheduled services, and I immediately signed up for a slot. When the time came, I met privately with one of the Dharma counselors as the rest of the larger group dispersed. I gave the counselor a brief rundown of my situation— Watched a friend die, soul cracked open, marriage cracked open, currently working in hyperspeed towards spiritual, mental, and physical balance, not to mention trying to discover my job on Earth. I showed him a drawing that I'd made which detailed how my palace of peace, my deepest heart, my godlight, was the truest part of who I was, the truest part of who we all are, but that we managed to play this riveting game of imagined separation— We've been taught we're all these separate waves, where I've drawn the rectangular frame here, I explained. But who we really are is deep down in this water, where we're all one. The Buddha also experienced something like this, the fellow said. At one point, his frame was exactly where you've drawn it. He gave his body every possible indulgence, only to learn there was still an emptiness inside him. So he went down into this place you show here, gesturing at the deep ocean. But be careful there, too, he went on. The Buddha dove so deep into that perfect 
palace of peace, as you say, that he forgot to tend his body. I'm not saying to disengage that anchor as if you ever could. Of course, stay anchored. But don't forget that these waves are part of you, too. Interesting. I certainly had been allowing myself to sit with hunger for much longer than I had previously been accustomed to, but surely I wasn't neglecting my body. I realized that my eating habits weren't all he meant, but I wasn't entirely sure how the anecdote applied to me. We're just planting seeds, my deepest heart reminded me. Who knows where we shall bloom? That day at the meditation center was distraction-free. I wasn't delaying my discomfort with booze or binge-watching or bullshit. I was diving deep into mourning, and its pain was coming out in one of nature's favorite patterns, waves. At one point on the drive home from Portland, I felt weightless. I felt like Charlie at the chocolate factory after guzzling a fizzy lifting drink. I flapped my arms up like a bird, to the extent that that was possible from the driver's side of a Prius, and I let myself pretend to fly. Less than ten minutes later, an invisible boulder lodged itself somewhere near my kidneys, and I dry-heaved, groaned, and grunted. I was vomiting spiritual waste, and it was, like its physical counterpart, both sickening and satisfying. Morning was hard work. And yet, it occurred to me that I wasn't doing anything that any employer would ever find valuable. All this work would just look like a big gap on my resume. This fucking world, I thought as I rolled down my window to clear the air. This hilarious fucking world. I had been making a conscious effort to let my deepest heart emcee at all times, but every now and then, the voice that told me I was a piece of shit would slip in. This was the voice I used to regularly identify as me before Marshall taught me otherwise. And the problem with our inner voices, of course, is that they all sound a lot like us. Who the fuck do you think you are? said my inner meanie when I left it unchecked. You are a piece of shit. How are you ever going to get a job? You are not good at anything. When this voice got loud in this new era of my life, I would tell it internally that it wasn't in charge here anymore. Sometimes this intervention was enough to mute the thing, but sometimes it wasn't. You're such a loser. Look at all the things Claire does with her time. What do you do? Nothing. You're a total fuck up. In these moments of continued self-pummeling, I would overcome my bewilderment and yell out loud with my actual voice, You be nice to my friend Evie. It was my attempt to extend the same courtesy to myself as I would to any other loved one suffering emotional abuse, and it usually worked. After such a verbal spanking, the mean voice would get small and shuffle off to the corner where it belonged. In mid-August, my parents came up from California for an emergency visit. They'd been planning this week-long trip since they'd heard the news, and I was looking forward to having what I anticipated to be their help and support. The plan was for them to stay with William in the guest room of the quaint cobalt craftsman. We were all still a village after all, and there wasn't any reason, other than absurd, unwritten social rules, for them to disconnect from my soon-to-be ex. And I wasn't going to forbid them from continuing to include William in their lives. How does forbidding love, in any capacity, serve anyone, ever? In my younger days, my mom and I had been exceptionally close. Throughout my adolescence and early adulthood, she was consistently my first call during any sort of emotional crisis. That is, whenever the shit hit the fan, whenever I needed help making the most emotionally mature decision in a murky situation, I had always been able to count on my mom to lend me her guidance. However, as I stepped into legitimate adulthood— 
whatever that means. And as geography had taken me farther away from her, my relationship with my mom became cordial, comfortable, and safe, but not exceptionally close. It's not like we'd ever severed our deep connection. We just rarely dipped down into that profound territory anymore. Over the first few days of my parents' visit, my mom and I had spoken one-on-one more than once, wherein we truly and deeply connected, so I thought, about what was happening in my heart and my head. I had communicated the connection between Marshall's death and my impending divorce, and I thought she'd recognize the truth that everything was as it needed to be. I assumed she'd relayed the essence of our conversations to Dave. But one night, early on in the week, my mom, Dave, and I went out to dinner at the new local brewery. I ordered a hard cider, and the waitress asked to see my ID. I was flabbergasted. Carded at age 35? What fountain of youth was this? My inner light was shining right out of my skin. I could feel it. And the waitress seemed to think so, too. She brought the drinks, and I sipped my adult beverage with youthful exuberance. William is such a good person, I began. I think we're better parents now than we were when we were married. I spoke of the infinite shapes of love and how grateful I was that the tipping of the scales was happening so respectfully, compassionately, and pragmatically. Everything about our imminent divorce feels so right, I said. But as I spoke, Dave appeared more and more agitated. Finally, he spoke up. I just don't understand, he said somewhat aggressively. Everything you're saying about William is just so nice. I don't understand why you're getting divorced if you still like him so much. I took a breath and had several thoughts in a sliver of a second. I'd already said as much as I felt needed to be said. I wondered why my family didn't simply trust me to make the right private choices for my own happiness. Part of me wanted to get angry with my stepdad and yell, that is none of your business. But the angry voice wasn't the one I handed the mic to anymore, so I took another breath. I prayed and cast out a golden thread and asked my deepest heart, what is the right thing to say here? How assertively do I need to defend this boundary? The answer to my prayer was a reminder that my stepdad's intention wasn't to hurt me, and that he too was working to emotionally cope with this new family format. In an unforeseen sympathetic twist, I found myself feeling somewhat sorry for a person who was so utterly perplexed by a couple parting on amicable terms. Well, I finally said, I don't want to share a bed with him anymore. Dave looked flustered and uncomfortable. Well, okay, should have just said that in the first place. (laughs) Right, I thought that was on me. Sheesh, people were exhausting. But I chose to smile hoping for Dave's sake he could find his way back to laughter, too. The day after I'd explained to Dave that I didn't want to fuck William anymore, my mom abruptly disproved my theory of our mutual mother-daughter understanding. We were sitting on the exquisite front porch of the quaint cobalt craftsman, enjoying the trademark Legrand breeze, when she started throwing spiritual cherry bombs. I just don't think you understand the reality of how difficult this whole thing is going to be, she began. It's going to be a nightmare for the boys. This is a very traumatic experience for them. I don't think you realize quite how terrible divorce is for kids. I squinted and cocked my head. For starters, I was the child of divorced parents, so the technical merits of her argument were weak. More broadly, however, she was claiming to know something about reality that I didn't know. Now, 
If I tell someone that 2,200,000 Americans are living in captivity and they say, actually, it's closer to 2,300,000, that is an instance of factual truth regarding mass incarceration slash modern legalized slavery that I am happy to concede. Well, not happy. (laughs) But when someone tells me that they have access to the truth of reality, a truth they claim I do not have access to, my deepest heart pings me a reminder. I am truth. I don't think you realize how much you're affecting people, my mom continued before I could collect my thoughts and respond cordially. This isn't just about you. We were all going to buy a house together in Mexico, remember? I have no idea what's going to happen with our plans to retire there now. Feels like my whole world is falling apart. And have you even thought about what you're going to do for money? Are you going to get a job now? She spat. Wait, what the fuck? Was she trying to hurt my feelings? Was this the same woman who had told me since birth that she cared more about my happiness than my income? It had never occurred to me I might have to activate my flower force field around my own mother. Well, I have a job, I reminded her. Yeah, but I mean a real job, she said. I took a breath and dropped a swift anchor to my golden core. Mom, I mean, I hear that this is hard for you, I started. I I don't even know where to start. You've listed a long list of things you're worried about. I'm trying to honor that you're allowed to feel however you need to feel, but I want you to know that I reject your worry. It doesn't serve me. Serve you, she said, looking as if I'd physically accosted her. This is not all about you. There are lots of people involved here. Okay, Mom, I get it. Divorce has a ripple effect. But essentially, it really is about William and me. We are the parties privy to the action. So I'm not going to apologize for doing a thing that feels right in my deepest heart, even if doing that thing makes your life harder. So you don't care about how I'm feeling, is that it? You get to feel however you need to feel, but nobody else has the same, right? Oh my god, mom. No, that is not it at all. I'm just saying, like, it costs me more mental energy to process this divorce than anything I've ever had to process before. It is a lot of work to stay anchored to my palace of peace, and that work includes protecting myself from all the stories people want to hurl at me of everything being fucked, which is pretty much what you're doing right now. So I guess I'd say that if you need to process this with someone, maybe you can call a friend or a therapist. I just don't think I'm the best candidate to assist you with your emotional needs through my divorce. It feels like you're pushing me away. Well, I don't know what to tell you, Mom. feels like what you need is not something I can provide. And everything you're saying is actually pretty hurtful. Because I have no idea how we're going to get where we're going. Every breath I take, I ask my deepest heart if I'm pointed in the right direction. And if the answer is yes, I take the next step. If the answer is no, I shift slightly until I course correct. And then you are seeing the world as woo-woo, she interrupted. And the world is not woo-woo. You're in a state of mania, Evie, and mania is unsustainable. Forget cherry bombs. Now she was throwing Molotov cocktails. Mom... I said, with as much equanimity as I could muster. Try to imagine Gangaji. I know we haven't read her books together for a while, but she was something of a guru to you a few years back, right? Can you please just try to listen to what I'm saying and ask yourself if any of it contradicts anything she has ever said? Are you kidding? She bellowed. This has nothing to do with Gangaji. I have had many spiritual guides throughout my life, and they exude... 
They all have an energy of peace and serenity. I can't believe you're comparing yourself to Gangaji. This is totally different. Well, have you ever had an intimate relationship with one of your spiritual teachers, I ventured? Intimate? Do you mean sexual? She said. No, Mom, Jesus. I mean, like, have you ever stayed in the guest room and lived side by side with one of them? Have you ever had to meal plan or share a bathroom? There are people, too. And I'm a person too, Evie, and if you can't see that the way you're acting is insensitive and selfish, I really don't know what to do. Holy fucking shit. I wanted to go bananas. Selfish? Insensitive? For following my godlight and carefully speaking truth? I wanted to tell my mom to shut the fuck up and get out of my face, but I was so fully committed to not being that person anymore. However, I was also a novice at not being that person anymore, so I didn't have a roadmap. What do you do when you're asking someone to stop attacking you, and they keep attacking you, and you are deeply committed to not attacking back? I didn't know what to do, but I knew where I could turn for help. Help me, help me, help me, I repeated into the infinite universe. Help me, please, help me, please, help me now. It may come as heartily shocking or as no surprise at all that God answered right away, by way of a vision. I saw in my mind's eye the whole scenario from a little distance. In a year, the idea that everything wasn't going to be fine was ludicrous. Funny, even. So I laughed. I laughed out loud. You may be able to predict what happened next. My mom didn't think it was funny. She did not think it funny at all. So this is funny to you? This is all a joke? This isn't funny, Evelyn. Stop laughing. This command I found to be hyper hilarious, and I felt myself dipping into the dangerous territory of uncontrollable giggles. This was the moment I learned that laughter is a birthright. You, dear reader, or dear listener, have permission to laugh whenever the spirit moves you. You may laugh at funerals. You may laugh at church. You may laugh when you break a dish or when you step in dog shit. I do, or I try to. If you laugh at the suffering of others, well, that's not particularly benevolent of you, but it's still within your rights. Laughter is neither a threat nor a weapon, and I encourage you to use it as liberally as possible as often as possible. My mom left the porch in a hurry. Finally! The spiritual bullets had stopped raining down. The universe had delivered to me exactly what I'd ordered, a way to turn the other cheek without striking back. But heartbreak also hovered. I was sure I could hear my mom's thoughts as she walked away. Her daughter had gone off the deep end, and wasn't it tragic? Later, that same day, she stiffly informed me that she and Dave would be cutting their visit short and leaving early the next morning. Unresolved conflict was novel in our personal history, and we were both extremely uncomfortable about what to do at our first-ever impasse. But I was adamant. I would not emotionally host a guest who didn't abide by the house rules. I would honor my own heart first, even if it meant that my own mother perceived me to be manic, closed off, and bitchy. And to think that hugging a tree in Poughkeepsie was as hard as I thought things would get. I said a terse goodbye to my parents the following morning. It would have been terrifying to watch my mom and Dave drive away, not knowing how long the impasse would last or how I would cut through the dense emotional jungle without my mom's machete available for backup assistance. 
That is, it would have been terrifying if I weren't being guided by such a capable commander. So I let myself grieve the changing shape of my relationship with my mom and trusted that if there were ever a chance to heal, I would remain open to it. In the meantime, I continued to follow the path I was born to walk by casting out the simple, supreme prayer. Where do I need to be and what do I need to be doing?